You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of the Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Hello and welcome to the Batuta Advocate podcast. My name is Wendell Hussey. We're beaming out of Desert Rock FM studios today. And in the theme of the show, we're talking to someone who's often dubbed as royalty around the traps by whoever might be one of their followers. We're delving into the world of sport, cricket. We often delve into the world of sport. It is mostly rugby league and the Batuta Advocate podcast, but we're going back to the world of cricket. Truly national game. And we are talking to one of the most esteemed members of the cricketing community. His name is Gideon Haig. He's joining us via the internet today. Thanks very much for joining us, Gideon. Nice to be here. Now, sleep cycles are finally back on track, I imagine, for you. It definitely are for us. We're looking forward to the summer. The silly season's in full swing. And there's an interesting schedule of cricket ahead this summer. Not the word I'd use for it. Mm. What do you make of it? Well, I mean, we have to play the West Indies and Pakistan at some stage uh, in order to fulfil our role as a full member of the ICC. It is the kind of schedule that only an administrator could really have come up with when we just had the West Indies last summer and now we're getting them again. Uh, that's because it was the end of one Future Tours program and the beginning of another. I haven't seen Pakistan for a while, but um, Pakistan, for all they're quite a, a durable side on their own surfaces, have a poor away record. So you'll be depending a little bit on the Big Bash League to uh, to keep people glued to their seats. And even now, as International players begin to drop out as they as they tend to do as the Big Bash League gets closer. <laughs> That's looking um, a little bit below par as well. Look, at least we've got our memories, and we've had some fantastic cricket this year. We've had some fantastic cricket just recently, even overnight, uh, with Glenn Maxwell scoring another hundred, remarkable hundred in the uh, in the in the T Twenty. But you know, we're paying. We'll be paying for that this summer. Uh, all the thrills and spills that we've uh, that we've had. We've had an Ashes series, a World Test Championship, and a World Cup. You, know, you can't dine on chocolates and sponge cake with every meal. No, unfortunately, it cannot last forever. And it feels like the perfect summer for the Big Bash. It's a shame we don't have you know. 100, 150 games. It's only the fifty-six or so that we can count on. It will only feel like it. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering as the cricketing world now heads into full T20 mode if if we're finally seeing the end of one-day cricket. I mean, I think this has been one of the great World Cups in terms of its narrative, but in terms of its its attendance and its administration, obviously quite lacking. Where do you see one-day cricket going moving forward into the years in between World Cups? Is it, like, is it being put sort of back on the cricketing shelf? Well, of course, it always depends on what you thought the objective of the World Cup was. Yeah. You, know, you, might have, you might have been deluded into thinking that it was a means of establishing who's the best team in the world. Yes. In fact, the two-month pageant of Indian self-celebration that faltered only at the, uh, at the final stage. It was going so well for, uh, for India up to that point. But you know, that's a thing that we find charming about sport, isn't it? Um, it's unscripted drama, and uh, and Australia pulled off a heist at the end. I think that a couple of things that we did learn 
50 over cricket is still popular in India. And frankly, it's Indian tastes that will be definitive over the next couple of decades. Anything that involves India, regardless of the format, is going to have an audience somewhere. I think what we'll probably see is a recession in the value of cricket involving other countries. Mm. We'll we'll get a two-speed economy. We'll get um, the the cricket involving India and someone and the cricket involving everybody else, with the Ashes being this kind of uh, improbable outlier that that goes on. It's It's the gift that keeps on giving. And in fact, in some ways, it's the envy of, uh, of India. They've sacrificed their own marquee series, India and Pakistan, on the, uh, on the altar of politics, and they have nothing to, uh, to, to really match the ashes. But in every other respect, particularly when April and May roll around, you know, the rest of the cricket world has to stop and, and crane its neck to, uh, to see what's going on in India. Um, in fact, we'll, we'll be doing the same in, uh, I think it's 19 December, when yep. we have the next IPL auction. Every cricket in the world will want to see what he's worth relative to the, uh, to, to the competition. In some ways, that <laughs> the auction's as interesting as the tournament. Looking at those models, maybe is a time to start considering franchising the national teams. Should we be looking more... I've always been a big proponent yeah. of that. Like, I'd love to see, you know the titans of Australian sort of business and these old established mining families, you know, putting more of a value on the Big Bash League where, you, you mm-hmm. know, having our homegrown stars like Cam Green and Glenn Maxwell head over to India to play a bit of hit and giggle that domestic audiences in Australia tend to let go by on the lazy Susan of cricket. Do you think, though, it would be the... Uh the great mining houses of Australia that ended up owning Big Bash League franchises? Well, look, so. I'm... I'm... <laughs> it could be the same as in the IPL and in the SA20 and in the IL20. Yeah, well, look, I, I wouldn't be sort of morally opposed to the Atlassian stars. Or the, 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 uh, <laughs> the Santos strikers. The uh, Rio Tinto scorchers. Well, there'd be no worse a sponsor than Aramco. <laughs> What about franchising just the national teams, just not mucking around and just going, it becomes the Santos Australian men's cricket team. Obviously, some of those players who have strong opinions about that might have to fall in line. But now just our ODI team essentially becomes an arm of Santos and it's a publicity arm for Santos and they fall under that bracket and and Santos uses its funds to basically go out and get all the players that they can and make the franchise as strong as possible to go up against, I don't know, Barclays English cricket team. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't mind it seeing essentially follow the same model as the Japanese domestic rugby union competition, mm. where as mm. a as an ethnic Victorian, I'm, I'm not sure if you'd be abreast of that, Gideon, but uh, basically <laughs> these teams in Japan are essentially owned by giant corp- corporations where you've got like teams like the... Toyota Sharks, mm. uh, the Mitsubishi Dinobores. They can be very creative, very entertaining. Yeah, I, th- I think that as we did see with Japan moving on to sophisticate their economy uh, in the 60s and 70s, which is something that this country of ours needs to essentially do, where you, you know our economy is underpinned by digging things out of the ground and speculating on property. It could be a move in the right direction because it's one thing that this country does well and that's sport, but I think we should be looking at ways that we can diversify into sport through the, the economy. 
Well, I think what we um, what we are seeing in international cricket is the forces of kind of equalisation that, that did exist are falling away. You know, back in the 1990s, uh, although Australia was strong, there were probably seven or eight other nations that could beat any other nation at any given time. Nowadays, you start an international tournament basically knowing that one of three teams can win. And that's that's not good enough. That's not going to sustain global interest in the sport as big as the Indian audience is. So you need some other way to remediate the, the colossal differences in resources between the, between the competing nations. But, of course, this cricket's going in the exact opposite direction, the way in which the ICC is carving up its revenues. You, know, you could argue that India did end up winning that World Cup. They took more money out of it than anybody else. They took 38% of the, uh, of, of the monies that the ICC raised. Now, they will think that they deserve that. But, of course, you can't have international cricket that basically involves one country. Yeah. And, you know, we, we should be thankful, frankly, that click cricket is still mandatorily 11 players per side because God knows the BCCI will probably argue that because they contribute so much to the common wheel, they should be allowed to play 15. <laughs> well, yeah, well, there's lots of uh, different forms of cricket that I've seen popping up around, especially in the metropolitan areas where they've got that uh, last man stands competition where it's eight aside. And then they've got other forms of rugby. They've got other forms of other sports where they really cut down the numbers. Do you think that's more likely to happen than, say, uh, a T10 competition? Oh, I think, yeah, T10's something that's waiting to happen. Mm. We've already seen it in isolated instances, but it's it's the next app and it will it will go down a storm with in countries that don't have a test or or an international orientation. I think one thing that you could do in order to equalise the competition would be to relax qualification rules, so that if yeah. a player, if an Indian player, for instance, is having difficulty in making it into his country's eleven, which frankly is a lot of them, you know, the Indian second eleven is as good as most countries' first. Why not offer them the opportunity to go and play for another country? Yeah, so similar to, I suppose you could call it the Brendan Nash rule. <laughs> Erudite reference there. Yeah. I think, too, that one thing that the 50-over game brings especially is that in World Cups, you do get these fairy tale stories of, you know, these World Cup, so, uh, like the smaller teams there. Like, we didn't really have too many this time around. We had Afghanistan and the Netherlands. But in years gone by, we've had the Irish beat Pakistan, we've had the Irish beat England, we've had a Bermudan policeman take an absolute screamer at first slip. Uh, Dwayne Leverock. Dwayne Leverock when he fell, the earth shook. But uh, what these World Cups offer to the cricketing world is that they offer a fair amount of fairy tale uh, capability where you just cannot get that in a BBL game, you can't get that in any other format of cricket no. that these countries can play so sort of moving forward that's what's really going to engage more countries in cricket but what i wanted to ask is that they're thinking that the next world cup is going to involve more teams do you think that's going to be a good thing or a bad thing oh we're moving from 10 to 14 oh that's massive that'll that'll change the face of cricket really <laughs> uh how many in the how many in the next football world cup is it 48 something like that something yeah like they're that. not happy yeah. about it they're not happy about that, and that's probably too many. But still, I mean, if it's a you know a, a ten-team World Cup or even a fourteen-team World Cup, is just 
it's like a tall, short man. It's a contradiction in terms. How can anything be global when it's so damn small? Yeah. So there are 108 cricket-playing countries or IOC members. So if we got to 48, that would essentially be yeah, half of the cricket-playing world um, getting around. I'd be very yes, curious. So some South would American be, nations would get a start, it would which would be, be exciting. Interesting. But here's the, here's the thing. You know, we've got the money. Cricket has never been richer. Mm. It's, and, it's, of course, the money has never been more unevenly distributed. Yes, yeah. I was reading um, the other day that the Indian Cricket Board generated revenues to the tune of about three quarters of a billion dollars mm. and of that not much has gone into the game there domestically it's it's essentially going into this giant organization that's quite opaque and no one seems to know where it's going really no well the money the money gets plowed back into the state administrations which are notoriously above board you know, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Completely, completely transparent and accountable. And, of course, a lot of those local associations are adjacent to the, the BJP um, or the relevant political power in their area. So you do wonder what proportion of the monies that Indian cricket generates actually go to the beneficiation of the game. I know Indian cricket looks hugely wealthy, but even the IPL, probably only, I think, 12% of Indian domestic players are involved in that. And after that, you know, the, the returns fall away very sharply. Mm. You know, you can be a, an outstanding domestic batsman in uh, Indian first-class cricket and never get a sniff of playing in the IPL. So it's a it's a mix of, of rich and poor with the rich getting richer and the poor kind of marking time. I wanted to ask it in readers and consumers of your content will be familiar with the fact that you are a, a very big fan of the Indian Cricket Board. Um, we, and, and yes, yeah. <laughs> and I imagine that means a lot of um, Indian cricket fans are big fans of yourself. We tend to get a few emails out here and a few comments um, all the way in the far western corner of Queensland. How many, on average, emails might you be receiving giving you some interesting feedback from uh, India? Well, recently when I, uh, when I compared the crowd at the India-Pakistan game in Ahmedabad to a Nuremberg rally, I had about three days of, uh, of non-stop, very colourful communication, which, of course, um, I responded to very cordially. But um, do I regret it? Absolutely not. The great thing about getting a bit older and uglier is that you really don't give a shit anymore. <laughs> I, I do quite enjoy the um, mashing together of certain phrases and terms that very excitable, obviously, Indian cricket fans um, can you know send our way or send anyone's way on the internet. Are there, there are times where you might not receive any kind of feedback or fan mail for a little while or does it kind of just keep on rolling in? Oh, in that particular instance, I think the most colourful description of me was uh, a Jewish Nazi communist pedo. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, there's a little Covered bit to break down in there. Not sure it makes too yeah. much sense, but um, there you go. No, that's... Oh, yes, I was Australian. Better, better than being a kangaroo shit eater, I guess. <laughs> yeah. No, I suppose if all of those things were in, in a line, you'd have to say bingo, wouldn't you, I guess? Yeah. <laughs> in terms of the buzzwords of hate. But, uh, yeah, no, there was one uh, term that we became familiar with, especially uh, following a lot of the commentary from the grade cricketer, is that this term spelled B-E-N-C-H-O-D, Benchod, I think. Yeah, th that was a word that was used very widely in our comment section, uh, especially for that article we did 
stating that Travis Head had given birth to 11 Indian men after the uh, Cricket World Cup final, considering that he <laughs> was able to silence a huge crowd of people. But, yeah, look, it's, it's a part of the job where, you, you know, you've been writing about cricket now for a lot longer than we have. Yeah. What are some things you've learned about the Indian cricket board that most people wouldn't know? Well, I, I mean, I think it's all the information is kind of public. Yeah. It's because it stares you in the face. It's, it's the fact that, uh, and, of course, that's what Orwell said, isn't it? Sometimes the challenge is to see what's in front of your nose. Are they wheeled? hugely disproportionate influence and people are mostly afraid to call them out. I, I think that their adjacency to politics has, you know, it's been acknowledged and, yeah. uh, and recognised over the, over the years, but I, th- I don't think people have quite grasped how enmeshed the BJP and the BCCI are now. Well, perhaps if they doubted it, they should have seen... Narendra Modi Stadium in Narendra Modi Land yeah. uh, in April for the uh, for, for the Test match, or indeed at the, uh, at the at the World Cup final. I, I thought it was egregious the way that um, that Anthony Albanese allowed himself to be used as a as a as a pantomime prop in uh, in what was basically a political rally in that Test match earlier this year. Yeah. Richard Miles had to fill in as kind of elbow stunt man <laughs> during the uh, World Cup final. Good dig, yeah. <laughs> Richard. But uh, it is passing strange that there is this statute in the ICC constitution that expressly prohibits or adamantly discourages political parties and, and governments getting involved in the management of cricket in their own country. Yeah. In fact, recently, Cricket Sri Lanka has been suspended on suspicion that, um, that it's basically an, an extension of the country's sports ministry. But somehow... In India's case, this is never noted. Yeah, I mean, what could what could be more palpably obvious? But it's it's. I mean, you don't want to use the expression "elephant in the room" where India is concerned. It's it's too much of a cliche. But but certainly something that um, I don't know. If you if you're not drawing attention to that as a journalist, then you know, what purpose do you have? Yeah, well, it, it is interesting, especially in India, how closely cricket is tied to, to politics, but. Observers in India could say the same thing about Australia with the appointment of Mike Baird. Yeah, well, he's, I mean, he is a, um, as it were, a retired politician. Um, and if you tell me there's no difference between a retired politician and a politician, <laughs> I think that most politicians would want to disabuse you. Uh, the fact is that, um, you know, there are many serving politicians with tremendous influence and power in the way in which. Uh, Indian cricket is run and the way in which its external affairs are managed and the kind of the political media commercial elites in India well you talk about the the Santos strikers well we are, we are complete rookies we're complete amateurs compared to them yeah the animal spirits of the marketplace are alive and well in uh, in Indian cricket I also read a couple weeks ago that uh, in the spirit of sports washing, they're thinking of putting together some sort of cricket league in Saudi Arabia. Well, that's certainly been discussed. Yeah. Uh, 
I mean, I think there is there are some logistical impediments to that, like the fact that there's no fucking cricket grounds, <laughs> there's no cricket culture. <laughs> well, uh, well, you know, about they can buy them. Yeah, well, a couple of years ago there were no golf courses. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. now they're uh, you know a leading force in in world mm. golf now. The difference would be that India's power in cricket is even stronger than the US's. Uh, thrall in uh, in in golf, you yeah. know, they would be coming up against a um, in the bid for talent. They would be you know, bidding up the price yeah. uh, from its pre-existing high levels. But you know there is there is there's still upside in uh, in cricketers' rewards. If you look at the IPL, I think it's been calculated that only about twelve percent of the revenues of the IPL go into the players' pockets compared to, you know, generally speaking, around a quarter in the profit share mm-hmm. um, systems that, that prevail in uh, in some of the other world's countries. You could argue that Indian cricketers are comparatively underpaid. Yeah. Of course, they, they generate most of their income from outside the game, so they're not dependent on match fees or, or contracts with the BCCI. And in order to acquire those lucrative side benefits they need to uh, acquiesce in in the monopsony of, uh, of of the bcci but you know, there's also no player union is there in uh, yeah, in, in, in I was about there's to no say. one to bargain collectively for them and but of course most cricketers simply want to play the game they don't want to be concerned about maximizing their, their commercial opportunities they've got vassals to do that for them but still, if uh, if Indian cricketers took it into their mind that uh, that the value for the game in India resided in them, there is the potential for upheaval. I'd love to see a Saudi Arabian league, maybe like a Brad Hogg coming out of retirement for ten to fifteen mil a season. Well, look, this is the, the type of thing that it opens up is that you can bring these players back. I mean, I don't know how far you could go back where you, you could have an over sixties competition where like if you throw enough cash at it it's like you get Tendulkar back you get Brian Lara back you get like how how far back do you go well there is a legends league of course in uh, in in India yeah. actually there's, there's several kind of tournaments for mature age players um, players who are you know universally popular and still command an audience uh, quite a few Australians have gone over in the last couple of years. Dirk Nannis and Shane Watson and Alex Doolan and yeah, interestingly, I, I did talk to uh, to I've talked to a few of those players who've been over, and their impression is that the Indians just take it way too seriously. <laughs> yeah, the Aussies are there for a good time, and the and the Indians are extremely earnest. Uh, you know, they these Churchillian captains' addresses at the start of the game. <laughs> That's very funny. I imagine it'd be like quite the opposite of a social league where someone who's played professionally is coming yeah. back to it. The majority of people are just like, yeah. oh, who cares? And there's one or two people yeah. taking it seriously, but that's the other way around. Well, yeah, like having been to India a few times, I know that they love to half-ass things, but if there's one thing that they don't half-ass, it's cricket. No, no. It's fantastic, actually. Mm. Cricket in India is, is wonderfully earnest, Yes, you know, the seriousness of the conversations you have about the game over there—you you sort of keep waiting for them to laugh and say yeah. it's only a game, but it's not only a game. No, 
much, much more. I just mm. wanted to ask quickly, what it, what does it look like for those fringe cricketers and the cricketers below who might be playing at a provincial level who aren't getting the financial benefits from sponsorships and advertising revenue, et cetera? They're not getting IPL contracts. What what does it kind of look like for them? Are there pathways coming through or is it just they're gonna plug away and stay cricket until they don't anymore? Well, I mean there's plenty of plenty of different ways to uh, to, to lead a career nowadays. In some ways, you know, the options are a manifold in a way that they weren't fifteen years ago. In in olden times you played for your club, then you played for your state or your province or your county, and then you played for your country. And if you didn't make it, then you you probably took it into your head in your early 30s that you were, you were going to give the game away. But mm. you can actually play for a long time now. There's an infrastructure dedicated to keeping players fit and ready and exploiting their experience under pressure. You know, Dan Christian is a, is a good example of a player who probably 10 years ago thought he was finished, but all of a sudden opportunities opened up for him around the world. He got another 10 years mm. um, out of himself and, and a good deal of financial security in the process. I think that it's it's certainly true that there are you know haves have nots and and have yachts. Uh, <laughs> you know, Virat Kohli and MS Dhoni are going to be wealthy beyond the uh, imaginings of, of Mammon, but that is going to be a that is going to remain a pretty thin elite yeah. of players who can play all three formats. Sooner or later, I think it's going to be the case that players are going to have to make the decision about which format they specialise in because there's no doubt if you do specialise in a format then you get better at it yeah. and you potentially um, you can potentially get a break on the competition. Yeah, it is interesting to see Cam Green uh, put more of a focus on the red ball mm. in his plans for this summer. He's a pretty curious case in that he has been sort of held up as being you know, our answer to Jacques Callas for so many mm. years and mm. he's just had this weight of expectation placed upon him and for you know a relatively quiet kid from the suburbs of Perth mm. it's, it's mm. you know those are some big shoes to fill and then he's just had you know in terms of athletic terms he's had a 32 year old pensioner uh yeah. r- really put him uh on notice mm. so mm. do you think it's it's a good thing t- to see these younger players especially in, in Australia focusing more on the long format I think that we we still place a great deal of weight on what a player is able to do in in red ball cricket. There's no doubt about that. Um, it's a it's a cultural thing. I would imagine the kind of people who Cam Green is surrounded by would constantly be reminding him of, you know, if you if you can do the red ball stuff, then you can do the white ball stuff as well. Mm. But it doesn't work the other way. If you concentrate on white yeah. ball, there's no real coming back into uh, into into red ball. I mean, he's he is a very interesting case. You know, he's a very young, twenty-two or twenty-three, and he's the game has indulged him. He hasn't had that first setback that often you know a lot of players need in order to to clarify uh, yeah. their priorities. You know, someone like a Steve War or a, or a Matthew Hayden or a Justin Langer, they all had periods out of the Test side, which. Yeah. Uh, uh, from which they regrouped and, and returned as, as better players. So I'm sure he will have been reassured that um, you know he's this this hiatus in his career is doing him no harm and, and potentially doing him some good. But it is interesting that his career began to fray around about the time 
that he got picked up in the IPL. Uh, yeah. Went for a, a bucket in the in the IPL auction. Had the choice about whether to take it or not, and there were people who were discouraging him. Difficult for him to say no under those circumstances. The, the feeling is that you're bulletproof. The feeling is that you can do everything. He's found this 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 year, no doubt, that that he can't do everything. And in fact, that that teams now, because of their regard for him, because they they know that he is potentially a force to be reckoned with are giving a lot more thought to the way in which they, they counteract him. He hasn't yet got the variety in his bowling. I don't think he's got quite the versatility in his batting. And I think there's a certain, I wouldn't say a softness, but there's a, um, a lack of resilience, which perhaps he will learn in the, uh, in the course of the next couple of years. Will he learn that resilience if he is kind of aware that he will be brought back into the fold at some point? that there is a safety net there. Would those guys you mentioned before, would they have had that safety net? Or when they spent time away from the test team, would it have been more of a, you're out, let's see what you got? Look, you know, if you're not in the 11, it doesn't matter how much welfare, psychological assistance, uh, managerial reassurance, every cricketer knows that if you don't make the 11, then um, you might as well be, the fiftieth bloke picked. Yeah, it's a it's a huge difference between eleven and twelve. Well, yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see where the selectors go uh, in the post Warner world. They have an absolute smorgasbord of uh, people who've had half a chance. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, and guys who are kind of half good. Yeah, <laughs> you, can sort of, you can sort of add up. Marcus Harris and Henry Hunt and Matthew Renshaw, and you might you might have yourself a player. Yeah, exactly. Perfect farewell tour for David Warner on a home home wickets against yes. the West Indies and Pakistan. Well, yeah. <laughs> He's not playing the West Indies. He's only playing the first three against Pakistan. Oh, okay. I think because because the um the last the last Pakistan Test match is in Sydney, and that's the one he's got earmarked. Yeah, uh, gotcha, gotcha. Well, I'm sure he'll score an absolute. Yeah, he ton has of been. Runs. He has been entertained more than Ian Healy was. I always thought that was just. <laughs> I've I've always thought that was disgraceful. What they did to him, it's like it's like he could have just played the first Test. In Brisbane, and had had the farewell in front of his friends and his family, all the people who helped him up. But it's like, no, Ian, no. But then, but then, would Gilchrist have been able to get 149 not out in his first test, as opposed? No, to No, he probably would have got it in his second <laughs> test. I mean, like, I mean, like Ian could have floundered his way to 19 and two, and that just and and. <laughs> That would have not changed the outcome of that test match at all. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is interesting that we have decided that players can have farewell tests. It is not it is not an Australian tradition. No. We, have, we have usually been extremely unsentimental. But I think where Warner's concerned, the, the problem has been that there has not been a player yeah. outside the team making a mountain of runs to, to push him out. There, there, there has generally been a lack of upward pressure on the Australian eleven, probably for the last 10 years. Well, yeah, like last season in Shield, the top run scorer was Cameron Bancroft, wasn't it? And, yeah. and even he wasn't rapping on the door. 
No. Speaking of this summer of cricket, Captain Planet Pat Cummins has obviously came under a little bit of fire um, over the last few months. Given he's proven that he can go woke and essentially go and win the World Test Championship, the World Cup, he can retain the ashes over there on English soil in um, convincing fashion. And he can also set the world record for the amount of uh, heaps normal beers consumed between here and London. Mm. (laughs) Seeing as he can do that, now that we have a summer ahead of us against the Windies and Pakistan, do you think he can be indulged and allowed to uh, kind of spend some time focusing on maybe social issues he's um, (laughs) interested in? Look, I I recently cancelled my subscription to The Australian and the one regret that I have is that I can't... They made you subscribe. I did subscribe. You were inside the tent and they made you subscribe. I did it. It was a gesture towards the masthead. I'm nothing if not loyal, but loyalty is a one-way street at The Australian. Yes. Uh, Anyway, yeah, look, I I regret that I'm not able to read the lashings of humble pie being uh, consumed. (laughs) Look, I mean, the fact is that I, I was an advocate for him at the beginning of his captaincy. I didn't see any reason why you couldn't have a bowling captain. Perhaps I was unduly influenced by Jeff Lawson, but he, he'd long ago convinced me that um, that fast bowlers were intelligent enough to hold that mantle. I didn't see a huge number of alternative candidates, frankly. And I'm also convinced that you know 90% of what a captain does is the stuff that we don't see. Yeah, We, we, we get overly obsessed with, you know, where you know, where square leg is standing, is short cover in the right position. A lot of it is to do with you know, your pastoral responsibilities to your fellow players. And I think you only had to look at this World Cup to see how, how hard these players pulled for one another. That is a very cohesive team. A lot of experience in it, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of leaders um, to, uh, to, to complement uh, Pat's exertions. But, you know... The relationship between Pat and the coach, Andrew McDonald, is very solid. The relationship between Pat and Steve Smith and David Warner, very solid. The next generation of leaders in that team, potentially a Travis, potentially a Manus, they've made big strides. Um, you know, Manus is a, as a white ball player and, and Travis is a red ball player. So, I mean, I think the results do actually speak for themselves. Uh, one thing that we have to get used to is we talked about the amount of cricket that they're playing these days and i think it's it's getting to the point where it's almost unreasonable to expect them to perform at the absolute top level all the time i think there will be periods where players will you know the only the only alternative to playing these days is not playing is getting away from the game completely mm. so there will be some slowness about restarts I wouldn't be surprised if you see Australia start tournaments, start series a little bit slower than they usually do because they're actually using the opening test match or the opening ODI as a warm-up to the rest of the of the summer. <laughs> I mean, even in the World Test Championship final, Australia was pretty rusty, actually. Yes. Took, took no balls, lots of extras. The fact is that India were rustier because they were coming off the, uh, the, the IPL. But, you know, we... We actually used the WTC final as the warm-up for the Ashes. And we were slow starting the this this recent World Cup mm. because, you know, Mitchell Stark wants to be absolutely fresh. He's not going to knock himself out 
in a warm-up game no. or bowl 100 overs in the nets coming in, uh, he's going to rely on being slightly underdone mm. coming into international competition. Is sabbaticals I mean, something we can look at in the world of cricket? I know um, ACT Senator David Pocock took a little bit of a break to go and study abroad. Do we need to be sending Travis Head to, I don't know, Oxford or something like that rather than having him play in a meaningless T20 series against India a few days after he's been on the biggest bender of his life? No, well, of course, they're all coming back now. Most of the T20 side is, is coming back after the um, game last night. Yeah, there will be hiatus, for sure. Um, it's bit, but it's very, very difficult, even when you're not playing, to psychologically detach from being a player. Cricket is a psychologically intensive game. Yeah. You know, even when you're not playing, a lot of it is lived in the imagination. I remember Chris Rogers saying this to me some years ago. He couldn't believe how much was expected of players on a non-playing day, you know, the succession of meetings, the succession of... Having to go know, and play golf. Yeah, well, the requirements for uh, fitness, the requirements of the high-performance system, it was very, very difficult for players to switch off. And sometimes that's simply what you have to do. Mm. Chris said that at the end of every series that he played, he tried to get away from cricket altogether. And no one loves the game like Chris. He's obsessed with it. But you know, even he needed um, some downtime where he wasn't thinking about himself in terms of uh, his performances and his and his cricketing identity. Yeah, well, it's interesting you say that because I think Steve Smith spends a fair chunk of his off season in Manhattan. Yeah, he just where, yeah. which is yeah. a place where he can essentially be invisible to anyone yeah. except yeah. You, you know your. Uh, Aussie expat sort of banker or, you know, or... uh, He can just shadow bat in peace. Or (laughs) Indian-American on the street. Mm. You know, of course, you'd be doing a double take if you saw, you know, the wide eyes and the the blurry complexion of Steve Smith just walking down Fifth Avenue towards you. (laughs) Taking a a beck and a cross step. Yeah. (laughs) Nudging it behind square. Yeah. Yeah, cricketers, it sounds like they need to take a leaf out of um, footy players' books, really. You hear so many footy players who step away from the game for a little while or yeah. they have an injury and they just don't watch any of it and they don't care until they turn back up at training, you know, a few months later or whatever. Have a look at Shane Warne. You know, Shane Warne probably added two or three years to his career inadvertently <laughs> by getting suspended for taking a, um, a diuretic. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure he would have played on so long if he'd um, if he hadn't had a break. Same with Mitchell Johnson. No, like Mitchell Johnson had a year out of the game and came back hugely refreshed. Because as he, as he said, you often play just short of full fitness. You're never completely fit. You're always carrying something. But if you do get the opportunity for an extended break, then your body gets the chance to recover uh, in in ways that that normal competition does not allow for. Yeah, like there was that part in Warney's book how he was going on and saying that like that's what my shoulder needed yeah. was was yeah. Just yeah. to have about yeah. like two or three months where I didn't bowl anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah I just yeah. was on the couch. And, and also to out. have the hunger, the hunger yeah. um, grow, uh, you know, because these days, you know, the players are pretty fully sated all the time. You know, if, if you are... If you are going into every game with a uniform sense of passion and commitment, then there's probably something slightly wrong with you. Mm. <laughs> we can't all be minus, I guess. No. <laughs> no, there was one thing I just wanted to ask before we go, Gideon, is that for a game that's captured our 
national attention for over 100 years. We don't necessarily see too much cricket in pop culture. Like, there's no Australian cricket movies. Like, there's only been an individual few scenes off the top of my head. I mean, there's that famous one where they're playing cricket in the park's radio telescope. Yes, yes, yep. In the dish. But other than that, you don't really see cricket in Australian pop culture that much. No, it's surprising, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I I agree, actually. I, I, I think... Probably two things. We're probably a little bit too serious about the game to have too much fun with it. Mm. The kind of fun that we have with it is pretty kind of, it's a bit sort of pantomime. It's a bit slapstick. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, yeah. the Americans have been doing it for years. Like some of yeah, brilliant like brilliant. The, the great sporting movies are always American, but that's yeah. like cricket is ripe for an adaptation of the field of dreams. Yes. Where, you know, you could have a canola farmer from, you know, Mm. regional New South Wales. He's got some of the best country and he's like, oh, I've I've heard from the spirits above that I need to plough down all of my beautiful canola Mm. and I need to build a cricket oval. And then he has all these people, you know, from Don Bradman to Richie Benno and, of course, now Shane Warne that they could all just come wandering out of this, you know, head-high canola in the middle of the night, and I think that would make a fine cricket movie. Well, it's a pretty familiar kind of uh, career move by an American writer to write about sport. Yeah. Uh, you know, your Norman Mailers or your George Plimptons or your Joyce Carol Oates or, uh, you know, it's... It's not unknown for them, and it's even quite respectable for them to, uh, to to do so. But you know, in what passes for an intelligentsia in Australia, <laughs> I think it's, it's it's regarded as kind of being complicit with the enemy. The, the, you know, the physical is is thought to be a kind of the uh, the enemy of of contemplation and and reflection. But um, but that certainly doesn't suit cricket. Funny, we you know when the a lot of intelligent people have have loved sport in this country, but they have felt a little bit reluctant to show it in an imaginative or or creative way. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, that's a fair assessment. Also, wanted to ask you, and you mentioned you just uh, gave up your subscription to the Australian. Um, avid fans will notice as well that you no longer seem to be writing for them, and the podcasts have all dried up. Yes. What happened? Well, uh, I'd, be, I'd worked at the Australian for twelve years. Um, I was a I was a contributor. I uh, and I decided at the end of my last contract that I wasn't going to renew it because I felt the desire to to do other things. Uh, you know, I'm not only a I don't simply write about cricket all the time. I um, I'm a journalist who writes about cricket part of the time. So, uh, so I wanted the opportunity to to explore other genres and uh, and other fields of expression, and the Australian just wasn't going to offer me those possibilities. So I thought, well, you know, I might as well take my own career in hand and uh, and and break away. I wanted to continue the podcast with uh, with Peter Lawler, cricket, etc., independently, but uh, but the Australian forbade Peter from 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 doing it with me. So, uh, so that's where we um, where we're at at the moment. 
Pete and I still talk. <laughs> just, talk you just don't press record. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, we, we complain. You know, if if either of us says something funny to each other, we go, "Ah, oh, it's content. That's just content. We've let we've let go begging. <laughs> it's going right. down the drain." So they the forbade Peter. They've said, "No, you're not allowed to talk to him in front of a microphone." Yeah, <laughs> I don't wonder if they know that we talk on the phone. They'll probably prohibit that too. Well, um, maybe they're a strange, strange organisation. Yeah, because what they've ended up with is an empty box called cricket, etc. Uh, yeah, what was the point of that? Mm. Frankly, they like to put random things in the empty box. Sometimes I say as well, they do. But it's a little bit like you know dealing with a toddler who wants to break a toy rather than share it with with somebody else. We actually offered we offered the Australian the opportunity to sponsor the podcast mm. to continue to kind of brand it, but I didn't even get a reply to that email. They're very good at using the um, uh, the passive aggressive technique of just simply not replying to messages. The Australian, yeah, and I figure uh, Murdoch organisations and Murdoch as a whole not particularly great at sharing. There, um, not big fans of sharing. To use your analogy about the toddler and the toy, yeah, look. It's endemic to big media organisations. I think they're big, they're bureaucratic, uh, they're slow moving, they're a bit jealous, they're a bit proprietorial, and um, they don't play well with others. I'm not sure that's necessarily confined to News Limited. I think you'll find it almost anywhere. You know, I've been a journalist for 40 years. I've dealt with a lot of big organisations, and they're all frustrating uh, in their own ways. And, you know, eventually you kind of... You get tired of uh, the way in which they dwarf human scale and the and the bizarre decisions that they make. Yeah, well, they're the type of decisions that have turned that company into an absolutely enormous revenue generating machine in, <laughs> in recent years. So I guess you, you know we can only look to the future. And if you look at charts, if things go down for too long, then they uh, tend to go to the vultures. To people like Channel Nine, I'm sure. I'm sure Batuta is nothing like this at all. No, uh, no. We uh, we tend to uh, try and keep things moving in like an upward trend. I think mm. that's a, a bit of a controversial move in in an Australian media these days is to try and invest in things that generate revenue. And the bureaucracy extends pretty much to scissor, paper, rock if there's kind of conflicting ideas, I guess, um, over certain things. Yeah. I also wanted to ask, you mentioned that you're a journalist who writes about cricket. I believe you're working on a book about the former treasurer, Mr. Josh Frydenberg. Well, I couldn't possibly comment on that. But um, but look, I uh, I can do what I like. Mm. It's... It's kind of fun, actually, to be able to say yes rather than rather than no all yes. the time. Yeah, you know, it, it's basically what I wanted. Uh, I wanted the opportunity to uh, to you know enjoy my freedom of lance, and uh, and I wasn't getting it um, at, at Holt Street. So uh, so that's a shame. But having having made the transition, I don't even want to read it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you're joining a growing rabble. Of uh, <laughs> disenfranchised Oz readers, but the nation does need a national broadsheet, according to Rupert Murdoch, and I guess that as long as 
he has a team of yes men that indulge him. I mean, look, I, I had a good time at the Oz. Don't get me wrong. I, I really enjoyed it. I, I thought my colleagues were excellent. I thought um, the reporters there were fantastic. I thought um, some of the re- some of the views expressed in it didn't sit particularly well with me. But I'm not that um, that obsessed with my the rightness of my own opinion that I can't entertain uh, other points of view. I just found it a bit disappointing that um, that I ended up being kind of siloed as a as a, as a cricket writer. Uh, I, I, I consider myself to be a very much an accidental cricket writer. Uh, I certainly never aspired to to being owned by the game um, or or making a, a particular career out of it. And um, you know, as as John Arlett said when he retired, there's nothing more romantic than the clean break. <laughs> Was there a send-off, a couple of, a couple of cakes, beers down at the – what is it, the so Aurora got, Hotel? Fuck all. <laughs> <laughs> My last day came and I did not hear a word. <laughs> Just a bounce back saying your email had been cut off. <laughs> very good. Well, thank you very much, Gideon, for uh, joining us today. It's been a pleasure to chat and all the best down there at the South Yarra Cricket Club, I believe it is. Yep, yep, it in, indeed it is. Yes, down Haven't... there in the Melbourne's Little Sydney. Down there in South Yarra. I think I've just I've played in five consecutive defeats. It's looking <laughs> like a long season, but at least I'm still out there. <laughs> it's just around the corner, Gideon. Just around the corner. Thanks very much.